This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast today on the pod. Does Vancouver need permanent speed and red light cameras in the city? Plus, we continue our series, The Next Million, and look at Vancouver's industrial land challenge as greater growth potentially squeezes out new businesses from opening in Metro Vancouver. And with climate change discussions front and center, why are major automakers hitting the brakes on electric vehicle production? And is BC's Airbnb legislation too tough? Should there be exemptions for local mom and pop investors? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. First, let's look at last week's Airbnb legislation proposed by the NDP government. The legislation enforces stricter rules on short-term rentals and uh, cracks down on investment properties um, bought only to rent out. BC United today offered amendments uh, to short-term rental legislation as well. Of course, this is all occurring as Airbnb Airbnb has been asking their hosts to push back on BC legislation to limit short-term rentals. They're asking those very hosts uh, to email BC MLAs to share their story and ask them to protect uh, the host's rights. Now, joining me now to talk a little bit about the debate around short-term rentals is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Good afternoon, Richard. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. Uh, I understand today BC United obviously pushing pushed a little bit uh, in regards to the, the short-term rental legislation that was brought in by the NDP government last week with Premier Eby and uh, Housing Minister Ravi Kalan. Walk me through the amendments that they are proposing that they think will hopefully um, make this legislation a bit stronger and still be flexible enough for those who wish to rent out their properties. Yeah, so it's important to note both Premier Eby and Minister Callan have already come out and said they are not interested in any of these amendments. But it's still worthwhile to talk about what DC United is hearing from industry, from stakeholders. One of the changes is around amending the term limit on what is defined as a short-term rental. So it would go from 90 days to 30 days. That was something DC United says they heard a lot from the film industry on, uh, concerned about the idea Uh, that someone could come to Vancouver to work on a film set and have a lack of options available to them when they're staying for that one to three month range. So there was a call there for changes. What we've heard from government on this issue is that they looked in Ontario at the 30 day uh, number and it led to all sorts of challenges in Toronto uh, when it came to enforcement and also compliance. And they felt it was just a possibility of a giant loophole. That's one change that BC United was looking at. Another one they were looking at is around uh, creating, uh, in essence, a special event caveat. So for something like the FIFA World Cup, there would be exemptions in certain areas, and downtown Vancouver would for sure be, case in point, one of those areas uh, where they would allow for those short-term rentals during that event period. You know, what does an event consist of? You know, that is unclear in these amendments, Mm -hmm. but it was something that was being proposed. And obviously that's to deal uh, with the challenges that are being felt right now in terms of the hotel sector. 
I don't know how many listeners have tried to book a hotel in Vancouver. I was there a few weeks ago. It was going to be $1,000 a night. And the last one, Jazz, that's important is an amendment uh, that would have allowed individuals to have one additional property that they use as a short-term rental. So you could own your primary residence and have one other property. It could be a vacation home. It could be a cabin. could be a cottage. could be you know, a weekend suite that you have in Vancouver, Victoria to go visit your family, or it could be an investment property. Mm -hmm. Uh, The amendment would allow you to have that. You and I talked about this last week. Uh, I think I referred referred to it as mom and pop investors, which I got a lot of calls on this show. Uh, from a lot of folks who did have investment property, one rental property, and they wanted to to rent it out. But getting back to your original comment in regards to accommodations for uh, special events, uh, big events, sporting events, here's BC United housing critic Corinne Kirkpatrick talking a little bit about that particular amendment. We know that we don't have enough hotel space and accommodation space in British Columbia and certainly in Vancouver uh, to allow us to host world-class events. And when we look at what we've got coming up in the next few years, I'll just use FIFA 2026 as an example, um, we anticipate, this is on the government's own site, is that there are going to be about 269,000 people coming to British Columbia for that event. And most of those will be outside of Canada, outside of the U.S. We have around 23,000 thousand hotel spaces in uh, the lower mainland Uh, and we know that this government at the same time in the last few years has removed 800 or a thousand units because they are buying up travel lodges and a lot of that accommodation that would have initially been family uh, type travel options for people that's one of the issues is that we've got to anticipate um, that we may not be a place where people come anymore because of the um, issue with not being able to have accommodation. So, Richard, in regards to the three that you uh, were talking about, and you you know talked about the the ninety days, thirty days special events, and then and then the last one with an, uh, potentially a, a investment property. I mean, they don't they're not too far afield. I mean, they seem to be blunt, reasonable, uh, something worth at least discussing and debating. But uh, you're telling me that the premier and the housing minister slammed the door on this uh, already today. The government is painting this as an issue of investors versus renters. And one of the challenges here is the NDP believes that the renter idea is going to win out every single time, that homes should not be used as investments. The issue comes back to, you know, do we have enough accommodations uh, to ensure the tourism sector can properly run? I have been uh, surprised over the last week how universally this legislation has been praised. It's been praised by mayors. It's been praised by the tourism sector. Uh, it has. Uh, it is hard to find organizations that are often happy to come out and criticize government. It's hard to find ones that will criticize here. But it does seem like there is some reasonability here around. We need more hotel space. You know, when I come over for the soccer, we can't all crash on your couch, right, Jazz? There needs to be places for people to stay in Vancouver. The price is going up for hotels. The demand remains high. Uh, But one thing you hear again and again from mayors uh, and uh, the tourism sector is, well, we also need places for people to live that work in our tourism sector. I spoke to the mayor of Penticton today. Uh, He says this is about balance. The one issue he has is we haven't yet seen the details on the province's legislation about housing. Penticton and so many communities need housing. 
They want assurances from the province more housing is coming Mm -hmm. before they can unequivocally support the idea of getting rid of this short-term rental stock because if it's this is the province's solution to housing, stop short-term rentals and, and not ensure that more housing is built, that's going to be a problem for places like Penticton and likely others in the province. So uh, you think moving for the NDP are going to stick to their legislation, ignore these amendments, and they think it's a winner because they haven't heard many uh, people complaining? No, and part of it is they also have tools and regulation. I would not be surprised if they look... At the day limits, 30 days seems to be an uncomfort level, but I wouldn't be surprised if they build into regulation some exemptions for the sector. The problem is you have right now these companies that are operating in essence as full-time short-term rentals. And in part, that's for visitors. In part, that is for the film sector. That is for the medical sector where you may have doctors traveling in to work, you know, one, two, three months at the hospital, maybe for patients. When you have a legislation, a blanket piece of legislation like this, all of those places go away. They turn into long-term rentals. They turn into people's primary homes. So when you do need them for situations, as I described, they are gone. So that's the balance that the province is trying to strike here, is to ensure that they have some space available for people in these circumstances you know, you're moving, you're, you're maybe moving to Vancouver and you're, you're in a temporary location before your home's available. These are all legitimate reasons for why a long-term rental or short-term rental would be a crucial piece here. Uh, the province, I don't think, has found the solution yet. And, and that may come in regulation, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what it is to accommodate these concerns while also ensuring that more places become available for people to rent or for people to buy. Richard, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure as always, Josh. Thanks for having me. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. Armor all. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to the show. Uh, don't forget to give us a call on the buzz line. We just had Bridget Anderson join us. She's the CEO of the Vancouver Board of Trade. Uh, she was joining us as part of our The Next Million series. And this time we were talking about the lack of industrial land in the metro Vancouver area and losing business uh, to Calgary, Edmonton, and to Washington State as well. It's a longer-term challenge. Uh, but the series itself focuses on another million people moving here to metro Vancouver between now and 2050. So our population goes from 28 million to 3.8 million. Of course, one of those uh, communities that will have to absorb more people will be the city of Vancouver itself. And with it will become more cars probably. 
uh, in a much busier roadway that we even have even now. Well, one city councillor, uh, obviously concerned over safety when it comes to speed and, of course, uh, uh, just the well-being of citizens, uh, one city Vancouver's councillor, Christine Boyle, uh, plans to move a motion to, to uh, add more potentially speed and red light uh, safety cameras across the city uh, where there may be some challenges, especially around intersections, and she joins us now. Uh, Ms. Boyle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. So your uh, thoughts, first and foremost, why do you think this is a priority for you right now that we actually have to start uh, adding to the amount of uh, safety and red light cameras that we have? So like many of your listeners, I'm sure, I, I walk sometimes to get places. I walk my kid to school most days. I bike sometimes and I drive sometimes. And uh, I experience um, the speeds that a lot of uh, drivers go when I'm walking or, or biking or driving. Um, but even for me, having experienced it myself, having frequently heard from other residents concerned about road safety, the, the stats surprised me. Um, the ICBC data shows that uh, there were over 7,300 crashes uh, involving motor vehicles last year. Um, 7,300 crashes that uh, involved people going into the hospital for injuries, and uh, 18 of those crashes resulted in people dying. And um, that's about 22 a day. And I think it's a significant public safety issue. Um, and like I said, I, I hear about it from residents often. In particular, I often hear about road safety when I'm talking to parent advisory councils or parents or grandparents concerned about Um, making it safer for their kids to get around their neighborhood, safer to walk their kids to school. Um, And so I have been on the lookout for answers. uh, And I I think speed cameras and red light cameras are one important piece of that. They're not the whole solution, but uh, they are incredibly effective uh, and an evidence-based solution for slowing our roads down and, and making them safer for Everyone. And you, when you said 7,300 crashes, that's for the city of Vancouver alone? That's for the city of Vancouver alone, yeah. Now, uh, I think I was reading the province has 140 safety cameras across BC, where, and of those, 44 of those safety cameras um, are uh, in intersections here in Vancouver. And I think of the provincial total, 105 cameras which monitor red light violations, there's 35 in the city of Vancouver. You're saying that's not enough? You think there needs to be more? Yeah, so I had a number of volunteers help me look at the ICBC data. And uh, what we're proposing is that we expand those cameras to our highest risk intersections. And in particular, our proposal is that we install red light or speed cameras at intersections where there have been 100 or more Mm -hmm. crashes involving an injury or death over the last four years and intersections where there have been 50 or more such crashes if they're close to a school. So really looking at what are the highest risk intersections, where are people currently getting injured and where are we seeing the fatalities and how can we expand the current program to make sure that it's improving safety at all of those 
highest risk intersections. But is that not already being done now? I mean, when I think of road safety, I think of the Vancouver Police Department has a traffic department there on top of it. Uh, they, they, you know, they, they go after folks who are negligent, maybe looking at their cell phones, speeding. You, on top of that, you have ICBC uh, that does a lot of work when it comes to public engagement and public education. And I'm going to assume, based on data, that they're putting those cameras and cameras that they already have in the city of Vancouver in areas, their own data says, where you see most of the crashes, where peeps, people's uh, lives are most in jeopardy. Aren't they already doing that? A, a bit of it. Um, but mm-hmm. what we see from the data is that there's a lot more that can and should be done. 18 people uh, dying in, in vehicle crashes last year is too many, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Um, it, much too many. The city of Vancouver has a commitment to um, what is called Vision Zero, a commitment to um, getting to zero traffic fatalities. And uh, and these speed enforcement cameras are one piece of that. We also uh, have work we can be doing to make the design of our streets safer. Um, and, and there's a backlog of requests from communities across Vancouver for uh, for safer crosswalks and um, flashing beacons and other types of investments that that we know will make it safer to walk to school or to get to the store. Um, so, yes, we're doing some of it, but there's a, a huge need to do more. But and, and, and so in this case, let's say you introduced the motion, let's just say it gets approved and supported by the majority. This would require you to work with the province. Ultimately, it's still the province's decision to move forward, is it not? It's provincial legislation? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the motion requests that either the province take this on and expand the program in Vancouver or that they uh, let local governments install more speed and red light cameras um, at our own cost. And then we could, uh, the motion recommends that we would then uh, direct any additional revenue back into that backlog of safety improvements that communities are asking for on on streets all over the city. I know you've had a very busy day. I really appreciate your time today, Ms. Boyle. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to the show as we continue with our series, The Next Million. Now, the series uh, airs every Tuesday and Thursday at 4 p.m. The series has been looking at Metro Vancouver through the lens of another million people living here. Our population is presently 2.8 million, and it's expected to hit 3.8 million by 2050. Now, how do we accommodate these new residents and how do we work? How do we play in a region with a million more residents? Uh, last week, we looked at the future of commuting with former city planner Brent, uh, Brent Todd. 
Squadron and moving goods in our region with Dave Earl, the BC Trucking Association. Later this week, we'll be looking at food security in the ALR in the region with Ocean Spray Chairman Peter Dillon. And next week, we'll also be joined by former Premier Christy Clark as we look at how we should govern uh, the Metro Van- uh, Vancouver region with another million people living here. Today we'll be looking at another important part of our region's economy, industrial land. We don't discuss the issue of industrial land very often, yet it has tremendous impact on our economic well-being. Industrial lands make up just 4% of the total land mass in the region, but result in over a 450,000 direct and indirect jobs. Now, industrial land generates a third of regional GDP, and more than one in four jobs are located on industrial lands. And those jobs also tend to be higher wage jobs with workers earning on average over 10% higher than the national average. So here's the issue. We don't have enough industrial land. The city's industrial land vacancy is about 1% among the lowest in North America, according to the study, to a study commissioned by the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Joining me now to talk a little bit about industrial land and our challenges moving forward and hopefully some opportunities is Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Bridget, welcome. Nice to be here, Jazz. Uh, my apologies for the long introduction, but I think it's important that we sort of get a sense of how important industrial land uh, is for this region. Paint a picture for me in regards to your study and sort of what you took away from it. Well, I, maybe we should start with what is industrial land? Because I don't think that there's enough uh, knowledge or understanding about it. So that's, you know, where a whole lot of production happens in Greater Vancouver and British Columbia. And we can be talking about warehousing, we can talk about film, uh, the film sectors there, we can be talking about manufacturing. We're talking about a very wide array of activities that happen in there that support a lot of jobs, as you mentioned, about 450,000 jobs. The problem in Vancouver, if you look around, we've got mountains, which are lovely. Mm -hmm. The ocean is lovely. And we've got a border, also fine. But it means that we have such a scarcity of land for industrial land. So if you think about it in terms of the kinds of problems we're seeing in rental housing, there just isn't enough. There just isn't enough industrial land either. And the land that is available most of it is not feasible to actually use for production. And an example through the study that we did was a piece of land that is really too small to develop. It was halfway up a mountain that really had no transportation corridors to it. So what are you supposed to do with that? It's zoned for industrial use, but really it's not feasible Mm -hmm. that it could be used for that purpose. Um, In regards to that issue, um, if we don't have enough industrial land already, or there's some challenges now, are we losing business right now to other regions? And that's what we wanted to find out. Anecdotally, uh, at the Board of Trade, we had been hearing from members, from our Board of Directors for longer than I've been in the role, that it's costing jobs. And I I think that there's a pretty... Uh, I would say a relatively high level of awareness by levels of government about the scarcity of industrial lands. So we hadn't really seen any kind of quantifiable data, just what the impact is. So we did a study and we found that just in the last four and a half years alone, mm-hmm. that five, just over five million of square feet of space was uh, was sent over to Calgary, basically, for, for firms here that were looking for space and they went to Calgary instead. And so that means 6,300 jobs in four and a half years, 
500 million in GDP and 500 million in wages. So that's significant. And that was just Calgary alone. You know, that was just the one jurisdiction that we looked at because there was a lot of examples available. Um, if you think back mm-hmm. at the Alberta's calling ads, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, it's very smart and Alberta's point, but, uh, but you know, it did actually, there was impact there. And certainly businesses in British Columbia that are looking to scale or looking to expand are having a very, very difficult time doing that. So then they have to look elsewhere. And in many cases, they've been looking to Alberta and to Calgary. So how do we fix this? Because as you said, the, the border's not going anywhere. Mountains aren't going anywhere, anywhere. The water isn't going anywhere. And I'm going to say the ALR isn't going anywhere. Um, what are the things we can do immediately? Because I, I worry that if another million people here, they got to work, uh, we've got to mm-hmm. provide jobs. Uh, what do we do to fix this? Well, we made a number of recommendations to government. And, you know, we really wanted to work as collaboratively with government as we could um, on this issue because it's complex. And you mentioned off the top that you're going to have Peter Dillon in, who was the chair of the Food Security Task Force. And I think that's really an important piece of the puzzle because food security matters and it matters a lot. So when we look at what recommendations we can do to free up some of that land, you know, if the government had an approach around prioritizing local jobs, local production, local food, and local housing, and took that as sort of a a broad approach to it and a holistic approach to industrial lands, they might have a different way of looking at it. In addition, there was a few other recommendations we made around looking at regional land use planning every three years instead of every five years, which would be very big um, Mm -hmm. when we've got the kind of population growth that we have, and also increasing the protection of the available industrial land. And You know, when we we actually took it one step further and said, so what if we were to free up just 1% of industrial land, if it was converted to industrial land? So what Mm -hmm. does that mean? 126,000 jobs, 8.5 billion in income, and 12 billion in GDP. So it is significant. Mm -hmm. And so we are saying to the government, take a look at this regionally, holistically, and really think about how, be, be creative and think about how this land can be used differently mm-hmm. by prioritizing jobs, production, food, housing. So the zoning is always municipal. Should it be taken away from municipal? And I don't want to get too political here, but if, if you're, what you're saying is, and it makes sense to me, you know, does that mean we would have to say, look, we're going to rezone some of this because we need this industrial land. I think of Campbell Heights in Surrey, mm-hmm. South Surrey, uh, Tawasson First Nations land uh, in Tawasson uh, that has an Amazon warehouse and others, another industrial work going in there. This also speaks to rezoning as well. So is this a point where we have to make some tough decisions? Does the provincial government move in a rezone some areas from even, God, you know, residential potentially? Do we look at the most least productive ALR land and do we rezone that as industrial? I mean, are these the kind of conversations we're going to have to have? Yes, we have to have all these kinds of conversations. And when we made the recommendation around regional land use planning, there is a regional land use planning process, but it's done every five years. Things are moving way too fast now. We need to look at this every three years was the recommendation that we made. And to think about industrial land, you know, does it make sense to have a warehouse on a particular piece of land or could that be freed up for food growth and and production? Um, Could we... um, make some other changes that would would protect food protect uh, food security because as i said that's really important but is there different kinds of of land uses you know there's light industrial there's heavy industrial and right now um i don't think 
I think what's happened is that, you know, there has been such quick growth and such scarcity of land that we're saying now's the time to step back and to have really holistic look at the region and the best use of the land for the region. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade as part of our Next Million series. And today we're focusing on industrial land. Uh, it doesn't represent a lot of land here um, in the Metro Vancouver area. Boy, it represents a lot of jobs, though. Lots and lots of jobs. Uh, 450,000 direct and indirect jobs uh, for uh, an area that represents about 4% of Metro Vancouver's total land mass. What should we do, especially as we're losing uh, business to places like Calgary uh, and Edmonton and Washington State as well? Call me on the open line, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Uh, let's go to James in White Rock. Hi, James. Hi, John. Thanks for taking my call. Now, I agree completely what she's saying, but the one thing I disagree with is the fact that British Columbia in general taxes their way of development because they overtax everything so badly when it comes to overhead costs like fuel, like property taxes, like land values, transfer fees. They can't compete with Alberta. Not even close. So why would anybody with $10 million to invest in a production plant come to BC and say, yeah, I'll automatically pay 7% more for PSD, 60 cents a litre more for transport for all of my goods, and walk home with a smile on their face when they could do it for 25% cheaper in Calgary? James, thanks for your call. I mean, James raises... A good point, and probably separate from industrial land, the core issue of not having industri- enough industrial land. But that's part of the challenge as well, is the taxation, right? Uh, well, and I would have to completely agree with the him as well. BC's not a competitive jurisdiction. Another report we released a few months uh, before the industrial land shortage report was around the cost of doing business, that we found in just a two-year period, mm-hmm. $6.5 billion of additional cost imposed by government. And we tallied up, was a pretty short list, um, the pay payroll tax, so the employer health tax, corporate tax, new paid sick leave, and the business portion of the carbon tax. And when uh, this caller is talking about, you know, business investment, BC has the highest marginal tax rate on new business investment in Canada, 25.6%. So he's right. Other jurisdictions, and Alberta is one example, but, you know, south of the border, there are lots of examples of governments that are taking a very direct strategic approach to attracting investment. And British Columbia has to do better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you raise a very good point. I mean, I, I, gotta, I recall uh, then Alberta Premier Jason Kenney was on this show. And we talked a lot about attracting British Columbians to come to, to, to Alberta. But I did bring up the issue of, of food security with them, and mm-hmm. particularly vertical farming. And, and he got really excited about the kind of things they're, they're, they're doing over there to attract that business. It's part of the industrial, industrial-based conversation that we're having. And that's part of the challenge. There are folks coming after our, uh, our businesses, and then we've got to keep them here. Uh, let's go to Damien in Maple Ridge. Hi, Damien. Hey, Jazz. Uh, how's it going? I'm doing very well. What's on your mind? Well, I was just, you know, thinking about uh, a lot of what you had to say and Bridget there. Um, you know, and it goes thematic with things like policing as well, mm-hmm. which is another major issue in the Lower Mainland. But overall, I think one of the themes is that um, it lends a, a pretty strong argument for amalgamation of these municipalities in order to... Um, better divvy up the land as, as it might be required in terms of maintaining an industrial uh, strength within the West Coast, right? So, yeah. um, I mean, with the NIMBYs in each, it, it becomes a lot harder to deal with um, and allocate land use, whereas 
where you have one or two policymakers um, throughout the Lower Mainland, um, you know, making these decisions and forcing forcing the hand. Yeah, Damon, you, I appreciate your call. Um, we'll do amalgamation another day, another segment. <laughs> I'd like to know which mayor wants to champion yeah. that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just nailed it on the head. None of them do, and that's the problem. But the core issue that Damien brought up is a cohesiveness in policy where we talk and think like a region. We We have a Metro Vancouver governance, and I get that. But we really don't. No, when you think about um, a country wanting to come and to invest in British Columbia or in this region, they're not thinking, I'm going to invest in Maple Ridge or Coquitlam. They're thinking about investing in the region. So we need a cohesive strategy and economic plan for the region, for the province. And I would say that there are areas of these plans uh, that are completely lacking. I mean, governments at all levels will say they have these plans, but frankly, they don't. And we're at a particular point around competitiveness. We're on a global global scale and we need to be doing better to attract investment into this region. I mean it also attracting talent. This is we have a, a a huge crisis when it comes to affordability for families and individuals. We all know about it, we all feel it. Mm-hmm. But it is the same problem for businesses and particularly small and medium businesses. Uh, final question, uh, are you confident? Are you optimistic here? I mean I, we're not guaranteed business. We're not a special place as much as we like to believe we're a special place. People will invest where our companies will invest where they feel they can maximize their uh, their their uh, their investment in, in whatever region that may be. Are you optimistic we can fix this when you have Alberta next door that doesn't have to deal with the uh, physical limitations of, of uh, you know, water and mountains and everything else. Washington State, that also is very uh, attractive as well. Are you confident, based on what we're doing today and our challenges, that we can actually fix this industrial land issue problem? You know, I think there are people at all levels of government that recognize this as a serious issue and recognize we're at an inflection point when it comes to competitiveness. But we have an incredible opportunity in this province. We have sectors that are growing beyond even what we imagine, whether it's life sciences or the tech sector. Green economy is great opportunity. It's just being able to rise to the challenge. And that is why I said, you know, we have worked very collaboratively and transparently with government, with the BC government on this, because we want to find solutions together. Industry and government have to find solutions together to a complex problem. I'm an optimistic person, Jazz, Mm -hmm. and I will continue to be optimistic that we can find solutions to this. Bridget, thank you. Thank you. I know we spent a lot of time talking about technology and electric vehicles and energy transition on the on this show, which I think is very important because it impacts so many uh, facets of our economy, our government, and, and our personal finances as well. And one of the things we've obviously seen over the last few years is the growth of uh, the EV population here in British Columbia. Uh, a lot of folks buying electric vehicles. You can probably see it in your own neighborhood. You can see it in your parking garage. Well, today I was reading the Wall Street Journal, uh, and an article caught my eye. General Motors, it says, is abandoning a self-imposed target to build 400,000 electric vehicles uh, by 2024. Uh, The paper says it's the latest sign that automakers are concerned about the viability of the market for battery-powered cars. Now, GM had planned to produce 400,000 EVs over roughly a two-year stretch by the middle of next year, but abandoned that goal. Its chief financial officer, Paul Jacobson, said today, uh, it was saying that uh, it's a slowdown in the market for battery-powered cars. Now, EV sales in the U.S. are still growing at a faster clip than the broader auto market, but the pace has slowed. And the prices that automakers are commanding 
uh, has weakened. I think it was a few months ago we had a story uh, focusing on um, the fact that uh, Tesla had cut uh, the price for the uh, for one of their vehicles. Uh, by about $10,000, and uh, Ford had cut uh, the price for its Ford Lightning truck uh, as well. Both vehicles, by the way, still not cheap compared to what uh, you can get these days, but they certainly had significant, made significant cuts. Joining me now to talk a little bit about EVs and whether or not we should still be betting on EVs is Jeremy Cato. He's an automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jazz. Hi. So what does this tell you? What goes through your mind when you're reading? And I sent the article to you. What are your thoughts? What do you think is causing this? Uh, EVs are too expensive. I mean, that, that's the way it is. Um, the, uh, the average uh, EV for sale in Canada right now is moving out at $73,000 a unit. Uh, and that's about mm, $25,000 more than the average household can afford, according to Scotiabank's recent study of... Uh, of household affordability for for electric vehicles and regular internal combustion engines, so seventy three grand is is too high. And even though, as as we both know, uh, you know the operating costs of an electric vehicle over the life of the vehicle are substantial, and you will get your upfront cost back. If you don't have the money up front, you don't have the money up front. And remember, with interest rates surging, those zero percent finance deals of just two to three years ago are all gone. Yeah, that make, you make a very good point. Um, so this is a case of a, an emerging technology, new technology. You got the uh, the folks that really want to get by the EV and can afford to buy the EV, buy the EV, but that that next level of customer is a as you say uh, may not have the finances, may not have the dollars, uh, and may be a bit skeptical about the technology in regards to um, you know range and all those types of things. So what do you think is – where are we going with this? Is this a question of just readjusting for these uh, automakers or is this something deeper? Uh, it, well, it's a very big, good question because the, the products are there and they're coming with a very, very fast cadence. I mean, I, you know, I, I test a lot of cars and I probably would say every other vehicle is either – it's got a plug. It's either a plug-in hybrid or an electric vehicle. And the technology is great. I mean, if, if you or anybody else were to climb into pretty much any EV, you'd really enjoy the driving experience. It, the acceleration is quick. The ride is quiet. Um, the responsiveness is, is terrific. I mean, it's a good experience, but then you start living with it. Um, you know, the, the range is on the best ones, maybe around 500 K. Um, but I was just testing, um, you know, an EV last week, and I, I did a, a video. You can find that on my YouTube channel. There's a shameless plug. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, where I drove up to Squamish and stopped at a few tourist sites, and I got to Squamish. There's an Electrify Canada station there and with four uh, charging stations. Uh, the first two I tried didn't work. They, you know, I called the company, and they said, well, try one of the other two that's there. <laughs> and on the third try, the third try was lucky. So the living with EVs is a challenge. Now, if you have a 240 volt in your house or in your garage uh, available to you, then that eliminates a lot of those problems. But I, I live in a high-rise down in Lower Lonsdale, and my building doesn't have a, uh, any charging docks in it. We're working on that. And the one fast charger just around the block from me is often very busy. Hmm. 
Now, the conversation we're having in regards to General Motors and um, it's saying it's not going to meet its mid-2024 target of 400,000 EVs uh, sold uh, also comes uh, at a time when um, just this week or just actually yesterday, Chevron announced that it's spending $53 billion uh, to buy Hess Corporation. Uh, It is a corporation involved in oil and gas. Um, And last week, I believe it was, Exxon Mobil announced that it was spending $60 billion uh, to buy Pioneer Natural Resources once again, also involved in the uh, traditional fossil fuel industry. When companies like Exxon and Chevron, companies, let's be very blunt, uh, you know, the market capitalization of two to $300 billion, essentially companies bigger than most you know, governments, um, are actually betting on fossil fuels, there seems to be certainly within their analysts saying, the fossil fuel economy is going to be around a lot longer than probably what governments believe they are, number one. And number two, it does speak to the aspirational goals that governments have, probably won't be met. No, well, I mean, there's, there's about 1.2 billion uh, vehicles on the road in the world today. They're not going to stop running t- tomorrow mm-hmm. or by, you know, 2035 when the goal of the Canadian government is to have 100% of new vehicle sales all EVs. So there is going to be a market for at least the next 15 to 25 years and a big one for gasoline and diesel. And and that's just the reality. And to go back to the price issue, rich economies like Canada, the United States, uh, the European, most of the European Union, and even China um, can afford EVs. And we will, we will most likely, I believe, in Canada and the U.S. just subsidize the heck out of them uh, as time goes by. Um, but if you're in an emerging country, an emerging econo- economy, say India, um, the the the, uh, the average uh, take-home pay of an Indian household is about about a sixth of a Canadian household. Um, so if we can't afford EVs here, what will the 1.4 billion people who live in India be looking to? Well, they can't afford them either. So it, this is a global problem, and it doesn't have any easy solutions. But I know one thing that governments could do. They could do two things right away. They could invest more aggressively on creating the infrastructure uh, network so that charging doesn't become an issue for people like me and who would be willing to buy an EV. And two, governments could invest a lot more in transit um, that, would, that would encourage people to get out of their cars in the first place and have easy transportation. And there's there's some new studies coming out about that as well. Um, so we've now segued, sorry, Jess, from cars to transit. But I, I really believe that transit is one of the big solutions. And, and it's very hard to get governments to invest in transit in this country and and, and in the United States, too. Yeah, and it's part of the challenge. We, we've been doing a series here uh, twice a week called The Next Million, looking at what Vancouver will look like uh, by 2050 with a million more residents. Uh, and we do have uh, Translix uh, CEO Kevin Quinlan joining us next Friday to discuss uh, just that very issue. Now, getting back to just for a moment yeah. the EVs, <laughs> the, the 400,000 number that GM said they won't be hitting. Sure. Uh, do you think it's ta- – like in the next five years, we're going to see a lot of shaking out going on. I mean, it's all well and good for Elon Musk to talk and sell his uh, Cybertruck and other vehicles. But with more competition coming from China, more of these traditional uh, car companies getting focused on EVs, that something has to shake out here to the point where A, Tesla is bought or sold or another company is sold or somebody gets out of the EV business. I don't know. But it looks like the industry itself also needs to be, to be shook up as well. 
Yeah, I, I think I think for sure you're going to see a lot of the startups. Uh, we've already seen it, like uh, Lordstown Motors um, has gone has gone away. But, you know, which was a darling of, of the startup uh, business three years ago. Uh, Rivian is another one. While you see some Rivians on the road, uh, another EV startup. Uh, you know, they don't have the economies of scale, and and the investors aren't willing to plow the money into it. So I think what you will see is the big global automakers like Ford and General Motors, Daimler, BMW, uh, Volkswagen Group, Toyota, they, they can afford to subsidize their EV development and production and delivery costs through the sale of other vehicles. And so you're, you're, I think you'll see a shakeout of the startups with Tesla. You know, Tesla's got a gigantic market cap and is very profitable. Um, it's not going away. But Tesla, even Tesla Jazz, is struggling. It, it just announced its earnings and sales uh, five days ago. Tesla's revenues are down. Sales are down. Uh, profits are down. Tesla's announced that it's gonna, uh, not going to move ahead very quickly with a new factory that it was going to build in Mexico. And Elon Musk himself, the great sainted Elon Musk, has already admitted that the Cybertruck is a disaster. Uh, there is going to be so much upheaval. In the, in the vehicle marketplace over the next five years, it, it, you know, anybody who predicts what's going to happen is crazy. But, but one thing we can be sure of is that the big companies that are well capitalized are going to survive. If you're a startup EV company, good luck. <laughs> Absolutely. Jeremy, uh, thank you so much for your time as always. Oh, my pleasure. We'll do it again. Well, a group of more than 40 states sued Meta today, accusing the social media giant of designing products that are deliberately addictive and fuel the youth mental health crisis. Uh, the legal actions allege that Meta has deceived the public about the harms of Facebook and Instagram, uh, which the Attorney General say exploit and manipulate children. Joining me now to talk about this particular uh, case is Jesse Miller, he's a social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, thank you for joining us. Jess, thank you for having me as always. So uh, walk me through this. What goes through your mind when you hear the headlines here, basically 40 U.S. attorney generals getting together and say, we're going to move ahead with this. Um, do you think this will be successful? I don't necessarily think it's going to be successful, but it's going to raise a lot of attention to needed issues around youth and their their participation on Meta's platforms. Uh, one one thing to keep in mind here is that this is a state uh, approach and not uh-huh. necessarily a federal review of Meta's uh, uh, operations in the United States. But within that, there are a number of states that have a different approach to how they have concerns about how children use the platform, whether it's age gating, whether it's content, whether it's advertising. So there's a number of themes here that the average consumer or parent who is concerned about their child being on a meta platform have to be uh, aware of. There's, it's a multi-ranging uh, issue, and the reality of it is is that uh, one or two issues may be brought to a, to a point where there is some kind of resolve. It doesn't mean that every state's concern is going to be addressed. Uh, now, one of the things that uh, these attorney generals will argue is that it's uh, it's it manipulates kids it's like dopamine uh, others have said the look the social media companies will come in and say look uh, uh, we are protected and I think it's called section 230 uh, in regards to content that we can't be sort of held responsible for that but others have argued that look uh, this is uh, a little different than that I mean do you think the the legal defense that Facebook meta generally uses will be they'll be able to do the same thing again i don't necessarily think so the reality here is that when we look at some of the state's concerns there are uh 
pieces uh, that go into kind of what content kids have access to. And the reality is that certain states like Utah or Arkansas have banned children under 13 from being on the platform. There is no punitive piece to that or, the, or, or, or regulated piece because a child can still sign up at the age of 11 to Instagram and no one's really checking to see if there's verifiability there. So you have to change how the Internet itself functions to establish guidance in these spaces. California looks at the mental health piece in the sense of how children are responding to social media-based issues. And so some of the uh, approach here is looking at studies that examine whether there have been shifts in mental health reporting for children, whether the social media platform itself has risk responsibility in addressing how children participate and what the negative impacts may be. But what I think is really interesting here is that, yes, there are 40 states involved. What are the major concerns that collectively they are, are focusing on? And I think as a whole, that applies to social media as, as, as exists, not just one platform. Do you think it's inevitable, Not maybe not in this case, could be this case, could be others, that the day is coming where there will be a some sort of reckoning for social media companies? Whether this one is successful, I don't know. It could be another one. And it doesn't just begin with uh, Facebook meta, it could be uh, Twitter, it could be others, that inevitably we're going to get there. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is that when we look at Instagram, we see young people vacating Instagram and looking at something like TikTok. And so Facebook's been down this path before when they recognized they had an aging user base who favored being on the platform or looking for different platforms, which is why they purchased Instagram. So in that, that evolution of where kids will go, whether it is about gating the age or putting in a pay-per-use, which is what we see right now with Twitter, now X, in the sense of that people would have to pay a dollar to be on the platform to verify themselves, would parents make the choice to allow their children on the platform if there was a financial component indicating that some form of content or some form of behavior would allow some more oversight? This is where schools have struggled across the world when it comes to bullying and threats and, and harassment online because they say, well, there's no real... Um, uh, oversight from from the parent or from the, the school themselves, where do we find those balances? The reality here is that we will never see a platform that's perfect for kids, but we can all agree that the content that kids engage in that space should have some regulatory. This broader conversation in the United States uh, and legal uh, uh, you know, dispute that is uh, ongoing, what impact, if any, do you think this will have uh, on Canada, whether it be on the legal side or on the public policy side in changing things here, or at least how we address the issue of social media and perhaps even cell phone use uh, in our schools and in, and in, in our homes. Yeah, we, we do tend to, to look at what happens in the United States with these platforms and try to see whether or not there are spaces in Canada to address similar issues. I think it's more favorable to look at how the world approaches some of these concerns. And in 2021, the Oxford Institute for Internet Research indicated, actually one of the largest studies ever conducted, looking at 430,000 youth from around the world and their use of social media, that there are minimal impacts when it comes to existing mental health issues with kids. And that's where a lot of oversight is required for each individual child, not kids as a whole. But if kids are participating without oversight from, let's say, family or school or without age gating, that child can be prone to issues that the social media platform may actually be exposing the child to and then exacerbate issues that are already existing that may not have been addressed. So for Canada, yes, we can look, take a pragmatic approach and look at how the states are uh, addressing an issue and whether or not there is a kind of a federal mandate that should be examined. But again, we should never stop looking at how other countries around the world address similar issues. Jesse, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jazz, as always.
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.